we sort of have to guard our, our hearts against. It, and, it, and what the difference here I would suggest to you is there are el there's elders as we've seen in the, in the past as we looked at those who should be honored that are devoted or strenuously laboring for the assembly. They should be recognized. And there's those who are, are elders by qualifications and are leading the assembly but for many reasons aren't strenuously laboring or do not have the time to put into it. And it could be they have young children. It could be there's health issues. There could be their job commitments. There could be other commitments um, that would keep them. Sometimes it's other ministry commitments. As one who travels a lot, there are, there are times where um, my commitment to my local assembly isn't as great as it could be or, or might not be as great as a fellow elder might be who is greatly committed to that assembly and only working in that assembly full time. So that, so there are, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be honored as an elder or somebody else shouldn't be honored as an elder because they're not doing this. I'll come up with some suggestions to you later. But as, as I'll just read you one verse. I think we read a number of verses so far, but Paul um, definitely indicates that all elders should be honored. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we beseech you, brethren, do you know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love, in, in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So first step is all elders should be honored. Second step is that there are some who should receive double honor. And so, and he singles out a group that he says, labor to exhaustion in word and doctrine. Now, some see these as two separate things, word and doctrine. I do not. I see them as one. And it simply, I believe, indicates how the duties are carried out. And so I believe word and doctrine um, describes the oral ministry within the assembly. And those who speak regularly in assembly can tell you that there's a lot of time and effort that needs to be put into to be able to speak. Speak off the hip, or a lot of people can speak. Um, really going to speak to edification it usually takes a great deal, deal of study. So, um, and, and the idea of laboring here is to the point of exhaustion. So ultimately what I believe, and that's what we're gonna look at some of these verses, I believe he's, he's speaking of double honor. He's really speaking about ultimately there are some elders who are worthy of financial support. And yet a warning here is that we should not honor on gift alone. There are, there are some people who are gifted teachers, but they're not elders. And so he's not particularly teaching, speaking about only gifted teachers here. And in some assemblies, um, gifted teachers are, are, are elevated to a position that the, the fact they don't qualify as elders or they don't meet the qualification of elders is ignored because of their gift of teaching. So while an uh, an elder should be worthy of double honor who labors in, in this department. Just because you labor in this department and you do it well because you're gifted in that department 
doesn't mean you're you're an elder or or should be honored as an elder. And then ultimately, um, it's humble leaders should not grab for this themselves. And so it becomes important for the assembly to do the recognition because an elder should not be putting himself forward for double honor. And then ultimately, the judge and the honor was be worthy of the labor of elders is the Lord himself. And we read that in First Peter when we studied First Peter 5. And it says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So there are times when an elder worthy of double honor does not receive the double honor due to a fellow elder's jealousy or desire for the double honor. So once again, it, it, I have, I've seen this actually happen is that elders are, are, are afraid to honor one above the other because they don't want to, someone to be first among equals. They don't want someone to get double honor if they're not going to get it. Sometimes there's competition to who gets double honor, mainly because they're not maybe the best elders, but that ends up to be the result. So that's a warning. Um, that's why it makes this passage difficult to me. This is, a, this is a, one of those passages by Paul that it would have been a lot easier if he explained it a lot deeper what he meant and what he was talking about. But yet it's not, but I think there's enough here that we need to base it on. So we come to the first question and these questions are really supposed to be a discussion question. So that's the introduction. The first question is, there's been much debate as the meaning of honor in verse 17. And what light does verse 18 shed on the meaning of honor? The debate is, what does honor mean there? I've already told you what I think it means, unfortunately. Um, but let's, let's talk about what honor, what he means by honor. And don't everybody speak at once. Well, I'm I'm the youngest, so I guess I'll say something first, and then I'll let the the wise older men speak. Matt, I'm actually the youngest. Just remember that. <laughs> well, we're we're gonna keep fighting for that. <laughs> um, I I don't see. I mean, there there could be an aspect of respect. Uh, maybe those that that are laboring in the word and the doctrine and applying it to my life. I'm going to naturally respect them a little more than maybe those that aren't. But when you look at the way you worded your question, you look at the, um, the very next verse. Uh, um, it, I don't see how it can mean anything but uh either monetary or practical compensation. Okay. And does anybody know where he's quoting the next verse from? First Timothy one eighteen. That is the next verse. What what is Paul quoting? He's quoting the law. He's quoting the law. Deuteronomy twenty five four. And he quotes it twice because he quotes it in the very next passage, which we're going to look at. So what light does 1 Corinthians 9 give on this subject? Now, 1 Corinthians 9 is a little bit of a, of a controversy subject 
and I've heard so many re people really misteach this. So I want to I want to make sure we're all clear on this. And and if you have a different opinion than mine, you are free to express it. But I, I think Paul makes it very very clear what he's talking about here. In Second Corinthians, it becomes very clear that the Corinthians actually were were double honoring some teachers there, but they were false teachers and they were the wrong ones. There are people who held them in bondage and people who stole from them. But Paul makes this appeal. I'm going to read it again in the ESV. It says, um, verse 1, I am not free. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it, is, it, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have, have sown spiritual things unto you, it is too much if we reap material things from you. And I think we'll stop there. So, as you know, Paul did not take money from the Corinthians on purpose, but he's writing to them and says, does he have a right to do so? And the answer to that would be yes. He has a right to do that. And it's not just apostles that he's talking about because he includes Barnabas in this list. And so he sets forth a number of principles. And it, it starts with, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And then he goes, do I say these things in human authority? Does the law say the same thing? And then he's going to quote the same verse that he quotes there in Timothy. For it is written of the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? So he basically, in in First Timothy, he doesn't go into the detail that he does in this argument, but he sets the same principle of the law forth that he sets in First Timothy. All right, so the question is, what do you think this passage throws on this question of double honor, or is it material, or is it just um, good thoughts? No, it's definitely definitely material, and almost gives the thought of uh, this is their full time job. I mean that when you when you apply the ox, and especially when you apply what Paul is writing and, and what he has done. Um, I mean the ox. A lot of times in in that time period, and um, my experience with animal farming, you would have one animal that kind of does 
each specific thing and that's what he would be trained to do all the time. So just for my own personal understanding, I could see where First uh, Corinthians 9 would give us the idea uh, that it, it definitely is, is material things. Paul calls them carnal. Um, but it, it also, to me, gives the idea of this is their full-time occupation. Okay. So let's go. Let's go. Um, anybody else have a comment on that? I don't want to short anyone who. Steve. Uh, no, I was just reading in First Thessalonians three, where um, he mentions about those that walk disorderly among them. Right. And it sounds like they were eating. They were enjoying maybe some benefits of really not even doing that much. And he says in verse eight, he says, neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing, for wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. And then he says, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if anyone would not work, neither should he eat. So it seems like there were those who were kind of slothful, you might say, and yet they so, were. So uh, a couple th a couple things, Steve, that's important to recognize is the situation. So what was the, what was the situation when he visited the Thessalonians? Well, I think the situation was, um, well, in verse 6, he kind of prefaced that there were those that walked disorderly among them. And evidently, they were receiving some benefit or something. They, they were probably receiving benefits. There were, per, there were people in Corinth who were receiving benefits, but not Paul. Yeah. The Thessalonians were a unique situation because if you, if you recall from Acts, he had a very short time in Thessalonica, probably the shortest amount of time in any church he, he visited. So one of the principles that I would draw from that is that an evangelist should not charge to preach the gospel. Well, I would, so, can I jump in there? Yeah, go ahead. Well, the book of 1 Thessalonians is written because um, in those three weeks, those three Sabbath days that he was in town before he had to leave with the pressure of the Judaizers, uh, he... He, he established the doctrine of the coming of the Lord, the rapture, and uh, I think which led some people to say, well, oh, wow, the Lord's coming back. I'm not, you know, quit your job and let's just keep looking up. And, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why he is saying to him, look at, you know, uh, you keep on working. You, if you don't work, you don't eat, but we don't know the day or the hour, but the Lord's coming back and you know, First Thessalonians speaks about the rapture, the coming of the Lord in all five chapters. I mean, it's just a very, it's the singular doctrine of, of the epistle. You know, um, a sidelight, sort of off topic, but he was there for three weeks and that was the doctrine that he taught them before he left. Mm. I mean, if I went into a place and I was only going to be there for three weeks, I think I would start in Romans 1 and teach them the gospel, maybe, but you know, um, the return of the Lord was very important to Paul, and it was something he preached even in a place where he was at, stayed for a very short amount of time. It sort of reminds me, like, 
for those of us old enough to remember like um, Y2K when the 2000 rolled over and people were selling all their goods and moving to the mountains and going into hiding and things like that because they thought that the computers would shut down and the world would end as we knew it. Um, they didn't realize it was 2020 that the world would end as we know it with this virus. Um, but they, uh, you know, and so it was sort of like that in Thessalonica is they thought the world was gonna end so they stopped working and they stopped doing things and they and they became busybodies. And so um, that's true. I don't know how we got on the subject of Thessalonica, but um, okay, uh, my memory's going. So Galatians, um, so what light does Galatians 6 give on the subject? What portion, uh, Clay and Galatians, are you referring to? Galatians 6 6. 6 6. Okay. I think, again, Clay, it's um, conveying the principle that those who receive the benefit of the labor of the teacher should materially provide for the teachers. And I think that's here, specifically in Galatians, uh, when you look at the verse before, verse 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. I think that's what it's referring to as well. Okay. That, that um, caring for those who teach is part of the load that each of us in the assembly should carry. Okay. So it seems to me that there, there, there seems to be a scriptural principle that those who feed the flock are like the oxen that should not be mowed that they should be able to be supported in some manner. Now, uh, and the um, eldership resource page that has videos on it, I watched the Alex Strauss video on this today. And one of the things Alex talked about was pretty good. He said, you know, it might not be um, full, a full-time elder where you would support him full-time, but it might be that you know that he has a library and he has a lot of books that you give him a you give him a monthly stipend towards books, or you give him, um, you know, paper, you know, ink or or money towards a computer or something that would help him study, and so you would you would you would give him some financial um, assistance in an area that he could use. So it's just not talking um, per se about a full time elder because. It could just be, it could be um, you, when that elder, when someone else speaks, you don't give them fellowship. But when that one of these full-time, not full-time, when one of these elders are worthy of double honor speaks, then you would give him some fellowship. Or you might, you might have a full-time elder if your assembly was large enough to support a full-time elder and someone was doing the work of a full-time elder. Um, I don't know that this is particularly teaching that there should 
be full-time elders. I do believe that the scriptures make it clear that if someone's laboring for the Lord, they should be supported by the church. Um, but once again, that would be each individual group would have to decide their size and, and what it would take. But it, it also doesn't mean that you could partially support an elder. Maybe an elder's underemployed, so he has more time for the assembly. And so then um, so a little extra income would help him you know, with gas or, or running around or books or whatever. So um, that's, that's often that, that partial help is often overlooked. It's either you're commended and we give you a full-time help or we don't give you any help. And I, and I, and I, I would indicate, I would think that in these verses that is teaching that partial or assistance on a monthly basis Maybe not enough to quit your job, but something that would help defer the costs that you run up by teaching and, and laboring in the word and visiting and, and those things. So um, a couple a couple things I want to go over before we go to the next section. Um, if there is a full-time elder, it's really important that the other elders don't dump on him. Most of the time, if there's a full-time elder, it actually he actually stimulates and is able to stimulate the other elders to participate more. But I have seen elders, um, if you have the wrong elders, I have seen elders turn over the work, would you say, or, or give assignments to the full-time elder to the point that there's very little that they're actually doing. Um, clearly, this teaching can be abused. Sometimes an elder is asked to be a full-time and then slacks off to a change at home. The elder for life is sometimes applied to a full-time elder for life, so it's it's, I think it's important that uh, everyone realizes that it's based upon laboring strenuously. If you're not laboring strenuously, then maybe uh, the support shouldn't be as much or should be cut back. I will also mention this, and, and uh, Jeff could attest to this, is that we often have people who are full-time elders during their working years and then when they retire, they're sort of out of sight, out of mind and forgotten. And so I, I think it's important that the church is not guilty of that either. Um, a strong group of elders is vital. If there is a full-time elder to work, they'll be able to guard against one elder dominating or use his position as a full-time elder in order to dominate. So uh, it takes a strong group of elders to have a full-time elder. If you have a weak group of elders, you make someone a full-time elder, they could end up to be a, a one-man domineering type um, leadership, and that would not be good. Uh, sometimes a full-time elder is essential for an elder um, for further group, or as a prerequisite for further growth, that you've reached the point where you, 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 know, you have newcomers coming in or you have new families coming in, and it's just it's overwhelming for, for one elder to get it all done and he can invite different elders to go with him, but it, it sometimes is good. Um, and then remember that some elders sacrifice job promotions, jobs, and other things to limit it, that would limit his ability to be a counselor or administrator, so he passes those up, and you, you need, we need to remember those. Um, and so much of my, what you, how you recompense an elder, or how you double honor an elder, or how you, whether you have a full-time elder, often, um, is based on the size of the assembly. But um, I think we're, we should be admonished to free up gifted men to serve in a greater capacity. And I think sometimes as assemblies, we miss that. And it's not to limit the service of other elders, it's rather for the body to grow and be edified. So it's not 
for one man to dominate, one man to do all the teaching, one man to take over. It's, it's to free it up. Now, I think we can all tell stories, but I've, I've been a, a, a group with a number of different elders. And if you all are full-time employed and someone dies, it really makes it tough. It's tough to get a call at 2 a.m. in the morning that someone died and you um, go visit, you go be with that person at 4 a.m. in the morning and then you walk them through planning the funeral and visiting the, the you know, the uh, mortuaries and setting up everything that when nothing was planned and you've got to start from scratch, especially if the death is unexpected. And so then, you know, you can go to work on two hours of sleep or you can call in sick if it depends on your job or you can, you know, make other arrangements for your job. But then that family needs you then and there. And often the, the, there, there's one elder who will step up and take over some of that responsibility because the other two elders can't miss work and they can't avoid work or they can't, you know, um, I'm sure like Tillman, if you're an engineer on the train, you can't call him up and say, someone died at church and I can't, I can't be there today. So can you have someone cover my shift? It, you know, so it's sometimes it's important to have an elder who's a little bit more available or working some type of a job where he can free himself up a little bit more and if you have that type of elder then it's important to remember that compensation or help would often be much appreciated so um just to mention that um all right any other comments on this section before we get into discipline and an elder with the time that's left let's say this in my opinion, it looked like this portion, overall, God has a plan, and that in plan is that there's reward for service, and it could be bad service, and he gets a reward for that too. So it's reward is there, good or bad, according to what he does. Well, ultimately, God will reward elders or anyone for their service, obviously. So Paul's talking about something a little more practical and a little bit more um, temporal, I think, or immediate in these passages. All right. Um, it's, it's, it's often quoted, and I don't know who originally said it, but I will say it. I will quote it. Um, it's not original with me by any stretch of the imagination. A man who is never criticized is a man who never does anything. So one of the things that happens when you have an elder that leads is that a, he's going to be criticized and it's easy to criticize elders. I have been criticized more than I would care to share with you. Um, some of them very unjustly, some of them probably justly. So um, there probably is no other ministry that has high standards and expectations. Elders are all, because of their qualifications and where the, the role they play are often held to a higher standard than missionaries or full-time workers or anybody like that because of, of the standard they must meet in order to be an elder. And so being a leader of any type opens you to criticize. And in fact, some never make a decision because they fear criticism. I've, I've been with elders who are afraid to make a decision because they're afraid of the criticism they might face by making that criticism. Their, their, their need to be loved by the people overrides the making a tough decision sometimes. And that's, that's sort of, um, so in some ways, um, the people lead, in some way, the people lead 
leading need protection. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. And so he talks, he talks about the first level of protection is do not admit against a, child, a, a charge against an elder except in the evidence of two or three witnesses. So uh, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 17.6. He's quoting from the law again. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. So one of the great dangers is, is with this in mind is that too often people recruit or gossip looking for people to agree with our criticism. We fail to go to the individual and try to win him as a brother. And so um, Matthew 18 is a very important passage here and it's important for us to remember that. Um, sometimes it's personal. Um, sometimes an, an elder has just rubbed a brother a wrong way I remember I was in a counseling session with a young lady and she asked me for my help. And I said, I don't think you can handle my help. I don't think you want to hear what I have to say. I think you're going to be hurt by what I say. And I'd just as soon not say it. And she begged me in front of her husband for me to say it and say it. And I finally told her that, that I think what she was more of a problem than her husband. And she was more of a problem than her children. She um, thanked me very much that night for doing that. But then like about three weeks later, there was a women's meeting at the assembly for planning an event. And she told all the women that it hurt her deeply. She didn't tell them how I hurt her deeply. She didn't give them any of the background. She just told them that it hurt her deeply. So all these women started walking up to me and said, shame on me for hurting her. And it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like totally taken out of context. It, it what Nobody realized it was in a counseling situation. Nobody <laughs> told her, I, you know, she didn't explain that. I pointed out that what that her kids were copying her and her disrespect of her husband was, was ruining her family. She didn't bother to point any of that to, out to anybody. She just told everyone that I'd hurt her deeply. And, and some people jumped to conclusions. And unfortunately, my fellow elders also did. They didn't, they didn't protect me. They didn't say, wait, there's gossip and rumor going around. Let's see if it's true. Let's see if it's true. So there's times that elders need to be protected and you need to find out is it true? Is what someone's saying true? Now, sometimes it's just so obvious and everybody sees it that it's not a case of protection. Then we're going to move to step number two. But it, it, it's ser if they're serious, there are witnesses. And if it's serious, like losing control or, or being a bully or exercising dominion or, or any of those things that elders can slip into, a, into um, a problem with. And so the next verse in 1 Timothy 5.20 says, them that rebuke before all, um, them that sin rebuke before all, uh, and also others may fear. And so if it, it's a fear action, it should not be entered into lightly. Should elders be held to a higher standard than other Christians? This isn't a question I put, this isn't a question I put um, on the questions, but this is a question I'm, I'm holding out there. Should elders be held to a higher standard than fellow Christians as in, in regards to sin? Yes. Who said that? Me. Okay, Joe. Anybody else? Anybody have a verse that would help support that idea? Jeff? I, I, I would use this verse. I would say that... Um, 
before the church, the, the church has recognized this, this man publicly to be an elder. Then they have recognized him perhaps to be one of the teaching elders in the assembly. I think of James 3, 1, those who give themselves to the word, they, they, they should be careful because they're going to give an account, you know. And I, and I think that somebody who is full-time in ministry definitely should be held to a high, very high standard. All right. So James 3, 1 says, my brother, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Some other translation would say, my brother, be not many teachers, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. So it, it, it definitely seems to set forth a principle that teachers are held to a higher standard. Elders are held to a higher standard because they're supposed to be without reproach and just their qualifications alone would cause them to have to, for us to help them hold them to a higher standard. So um, there's two things that I think need to be considered here, rebuke before all. The, the manner of sin, if yes, if they're continuing to hold the office of elder, so it would depend on the level of sin and the degree of the sin, and it might just be something that slipped up or it might be something, um, I think in the King James it says, uh, I mean in the new the ESV it translates it well, and for those who persist in sin, for those who persist in sin, so it's just not... The, the King James says, um, rebuke them before all and the, uh, that others may fear. This says, and those, who re, and those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So the, the Greek word says it's a, it's a habitual, ongoing issue. It's just not one time we became frustrated and said something that was wrong. It's, it's an ongoing anger issue. It's an ongoing um, bullying issue. It's an ongoing sin of some sort that everyone can see and there's many witnesses to. And if he's open for correction and he's correctable and, he's, and he stops, that would be one thing. But there are some sins that would cause him to resign as an elder. And so that's, that takes some wisdom as to what would be a sin that would resign as an elder and what would be a sin that you would, re, you would simply rebuke and he would remain as an elder. And so one of the one of the sins that someone said, well, fornication. Well, fornication. If he if he's guilty of fornication, and he confesses to fornication, then he's no longer a one woman man. He's automatically disqualified as an elder. And so there are sins that because they're listed in the qualification that you do, then they would eliminate you. We had I had a. I had a friend who, who we even had come speak on our assembly a couple of times and he disappeared off the face of the map. And I finally tracked him down about six months later and asked him what happened. Well, he'd gotten a DUI and he couldn't, he, he didn't want to, he just, he just disappeared. He just left. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't face the assembly and stand up and announce that he'd gotten a DUI that he had in fact had not been sober, that he'd been given to, over to alcohol and that he had a real issue with it that he needed to deal with and just step down and humble himself. He just disappeared. He just walked away from everyone. And so um, he disciplined himself in that case. But in the case of an assembly, that would be something the assembly would definitely have to deal with. Ask him to step down. I believe it, getting a DUI would show that you have a problem with alcohol. You've broken the laws. You're not above reproach. So it depends on the sin. I was on another assembly where in front of everyone, an elder totally lost control of himself and just 
bullied two older women in front of a number of witnesses and basically was too ashamed to come back. But one of the elders kept wanting him to come back as an elder and the other elder said, no, no, I'm sorry, he's, he's crossed the line. That's a line, he crossed the line. We're not gonna invite him back as an elder, he crossed the line. So sometimes it takes the assembly, sometimes it takes the other elders to, be, to have enough courage that when someone does cross the, the line, that they stand up to it. So elders, if they are the proper character, will model their willingness to receive correction. There are none of us, including elders, that at, at, at time need, there are none of us, including elders, that at some time need correction. We, we all do things that are in the flesh, hopefully not as often if you're a mature elder, but there are times you might do something in the flesh and if someone comes up and, and, and admonishes you, your response to that admonishment usually will tell a lot about your character. Wait. Yes. Um, I, I have a message that I have, I can't remember if I've, I've spoken it here at Palms or not, but it's called Restoring the Fallen. And uh, I, I look at examples how Christ ran out and found Peter after he had denied him in, in you know, before the Caiaphas' house there. And um, I, I just, we just have got to find ways to, uh, to, to restore people. Um, Paul has that in mind. He, he talked about the brother in Corinthians who was guilty of living with his father's uh, new wife or whatever it was. And, and, um, but then Paul says, now look, it, um, it's going to be too hard on them. You've got to go back out and find them. And you've got you've to help them and bring them back so that he, you, know, you can give somebody over to Satan for a sexual sin but that's not permanent. <laughs> You've got, we've got to have ways to restore people as well. And, and, and then we need to have the discussions on forgiveness. Uh, and a church, as a church, should forgive somebody. And so I, I just, um, you know, I, I, um, I don't know. I just, I, th I think that if we don't restore fallen people, we are hurting them. And uh, the Lord has spoken on that in Corinthians. So Proverbs 17, 10 says, A reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. But the, 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 my thinking is exactly the same as, as Jess. Any, any discipline should be done in grace with the goal of restoration. I went to an assembly and a young man wasn't there. And I said, oh, where's the young man? He said, well, he's, he's been put under discipline for um, fornication. And I said, who's, who's, who's working with him to restore him? And they looked at me like I was crazy, like, like what? We're supposed to turn them over to Satan. And I said, the goal of any discipline is to restore. Is anyone working with them? And they said, no. And I said, you mind if I talk to him? And so they gave me his number and I started calling him and I had a number of counseling situations. And he was repentant, but he thought that his sin had eliminated from ever attending the assembly again or ever being restored. And, and, and we teach that by our actions more than we teach it by our words. And we don't forgive. And as, as Jeff said, 2 Corinthians makes it very clear that when someone has truly repented, has forsaken the sin, and is walking in the light, that they should be restored. They should be accepted back into fellowship. Now, I don't know that they should be accepted again as an elder because I don't know if they're any longer above reproach, but they should definitely be part of the fellowship. 
And I think sometimes we put people in dog houses and there's no key to ever let them out. And it's, it's a shame, I think, on assemblies. So, yeah. I, I think, I think what, what Jeff brought up, we definitely need to be working with people that have fallen. That, I mean, <laughs> such were some of we, you know? I mean, that's, that's if, it was, if God didn't work with fallen people, he wouldn't work with people at all. Uh, but I think that once a man has been an elder and he's been in that position of leadership, there will be certain things that will, if he uh, goes into those things, he will not then be eligible again for that position. But yeah. we, we should always strive to see these men uh, if that is the case, uh, we should see these men restored uh, to our fellowship because they they still have value. They're still uh, men that can help and and maybe help in an area that's different than where they were before, but may have more impact. Yeah, and and I just see that above reproach qualification sort of would eliminate someone if they were disciplined for sin. I just, I think, unfortunately, that there are some things that we can do. And, and sometimes, I, to be honest with you, I, I often, when I pray for young men, is I pray that they would not, as Paul said, that they would run the race in such a way as they wouldn't be disqualified. Because sometimes young men make mistakes that are so severe, they disqualify themselves from being an elder early on because of, of foolishness or because of sin. And, and I think it is possible to do that. So I, I, I think that's, that's true. All right. Question five. Whoops. What? I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to finish on time and we might almost make it. So question five, why do you think Paul has a charge in verse 21? I read verse 21 in the, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing doing nothing from partiality. Why do you think he adds that charge at the end of this part about disciplining or judging elders? Matt, did you have something to say on the last part? Uh, actually, oh, Joe, sorry. you were trying to speak up before when Matt was speaking there. I was just getting you in there. Did you have something? It's okay. I'll just finish this, and maybe if we have time, when it's all done, I'll just make a comment. Okay. And on just my two cents on the discipline of an elder, it says rebuke an elder there, and then we kind of work on it going into elders being removed from being an elder. So the above reproach thing, um, I think there's definitely some differing opinions on it. Um, right. It's current, like is that can, could that could a charge be brought against that person right now um, could be one way of of interpreting above reproach but when it comes to sins or issues that don't deal with the qualifications i think we all were clear that fornication would remove somebody from being an elder but let's just take um the bullying or you know losing your temper for instance like it says rebuke before all. So it doesn't say necessarily you put them away. Right. Like that. 
but I think when it, when it becomes a uh, habitual thing, like, so let's say there was an issue, it was brought to it and it was rectified, but then it happened again. And then that person was maybe publicly rebuked, but then it happened again. When it becomes a pattern, I think even the smallest things should probably take somebody away because then I think it goes into above reproach because they've proven themselves to not be able to control themselves. Right. That's, that's why I like the, uh, the ESV because the, 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 con, the, um, the verb makes is, is clear that it's persistent sin. It's not a one-time act that we're talking about here. It's someone who is, who has been approached, who has been admonished, but they continue to persist in sin. That's the ones that then you rebuke before all. You, you know, you shouldn't rebuke someone before all for a one-time failure. You should rebuke someone for all when you've admonished them, when you've counseled them, when you've encouraged them, and they persist in the sin. That's one of the reasons I read the ESV in this passage, because it makes it clear. So that so the verb there makes it clear that it's something that it's a habitual practice. You do over and over and over again. And unfortunately, we don't that um, we can't conjugate the verb in English that way because that, we don't have as many options as the Greeks did, and that's why the Greek is such a good language for the New Testament to be written in. But it's a, it's the idea of consistently doing it and not stopping. That if someone consistently sins and not stopping, now it could be a minor sin, then you might rebuke before all, and he still would be an elder. I'm not saying every elder who's rebuked should be replaced, but I do think that sometimes there needs to be public rebuke when someone isn't listening or, or, or doesn't seem to be hearing the message that's I being would, given. Uh, I would kind of propose that like even the smallest thing done enough times would remove somebody from being an elder. And, and, and once again, you would go back to the qualifications. And if that you thought that he was no longer qualified, that's why elders for life is such a false doctrine is that it, 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 it then someone can can fall into error or fall into to a habit be approached but their pride or whatever will not let they don't stop that habit and then they continue all right so let's let's go to this verse because people want comments after the last question why do you think paul has a charge in verse 21 I think you need to have a standard that's biblical. You need to have a standard that right from the word, the lips of Paul. And uh, you can't then show partiality in that standard. You've got to stay to it no matter who is the one who is guilty, no matter who you're going to discipline or who, who you're going to exhort or whatever it is. You, you have to be consistent based upon Pauline teaching, I think. And if you're not, then... You know, you can't you can't show partiality. <laughs> Steve Steve Halsheiser has a book on the assemblies, and in his book on the assemblies, he says partiality has done more to damage an assembly than almost any other sin. Hmm. Well, you see in Galatians uh, two that uh, Paul didn't show any partiality with Peter. <laughs> no. Uh, when Peter was eating with the Gentiles, uh-oh, here comes the Jews from Jerusalem. You know, we better get up and, and not eat with the Gentiles now that the Jews are coming. 
And the thing that was in that one verse in verse 12, it says, it says he feared them who were of the circumcision. And so fear was causing him to stray away from treating everybody the same. There was partiality there. But I think one of the things too about Paul is the fact that he admonished him too because it affected more than just Peter. And we all love Barnabas. We think the one, the world of Barnabas, because he was an encourager and so on. Yeah. But even he was led away by the same sin. And, uh, and yet Paul addressed it, and he didn't show any partiality when he did. Also in James 2, in, in the book of James, you remember they were showing partiality based on what people wore when they came to the, <laughs> to the meetings. And uh, one book I read by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey was he uh, gave an illustration of a leper who was really disfigured. And he was really concerned that when he would, this leper one was, you know, to the point where he wasn't progressing any worse than what he was. And uh, he wanted to bring that dear brother to the assembly. And he was wondering how the people would respond when they got there. And he was so grateful that they welcomed this brother. They encouraged him. This guy went on to serve in a factory that he worked at. And he was the best man at his job. But it's that support, that encouragement that caused him to excel to the, you know, to where he uh, eventually ended up. But Now, this, this passage is specifically applying to discipline of an elder, I believe. But it yeah. needs to be true of any discipline in the assembly. I, when I grew up, there were, there were um, the visitor, the, 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 the outsiders who weren't, didn't have family members at the church, they were readily disciplined when the elders' daughters and elders' sons it, were rarely disciplined, even though they maybe were doing exactly the same thing as these out, as the, as the, you know, the non-family members. So it's almost, it was a common among this young people and probably wrongly so, we called it the FBI, the Friends, Brother, and In-Laws Association. <laughs> so, um, if you belong to the FBI, you were in good shape. If you didn't, look out because they would they would get you if they heard you did something wrong. So, um, partiality is a is a terrible thing. It's it's a terrible thing among elders. Sometimes elders protect themselves simply because uh, they're protecting the office of elders and the dignity of elders. Sort of like the the blue line that no one wants to cross. And so, partiality is a huge issue. It can be an issue, and in some assemblies, is an issue. And so, that's I think. We need to remember that and, and be aware of that. And then the last thing that he, he talks about is lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a partaker of other man's sins, keep thyself pure. And so it's really important that you know the character of a man. It's really important that you don't join him in his sin. So sometimes, as, as we have learned in American politics, sometimes a cover-up is worse than the sin itself. And so if the elders join in the cover-up, it can totally demoralize and we've seen we've seen some big churches and and there's a big one in Chicago right now that just replaced its pastor and it certainly looks like there was a cover-up for him and some of his sins for quite a while there in the and the and the church in Seattle on uh, Mars Hills that there was seemed to be a cover-up on the on on their pastor's discretions and the things he was doing wrong and so there there were men who were godly who participated in the sin by covering up the sin. And so I, I would suggest this verse, 
it just points out that if there is sin, you, you can't cover it up. You can't sweep it under the rug. You can't ignore it because you end up participating in it. And then the final thing is to keep yourself pure. And so I think this passage is very much addressing elders. It's addressing the discipline of an elder. It's addressing the honoring of an elder. And um, I think it's a misunderstood passage. Um, I think it's often misapplied. And I think the practical outworking of it is often difficult and takes a great deal of wisdom and understanding. Well, so, you make a yeah, All right. Um, yeah. You're right. It should be not just with regarding to elders, although I agree the passage mostly is dealing with elders. But how about um, missionaries and, and full-time Christian people? I, I was thinking as we were talking about the great uh, debate between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Should John Mark go back out and be used on a second missionary tour? And it, it was so sharply divided amongst these two men that they separated. And Barnabas took Mark and went to Crete or Cyprus, whatever it was, and Paul took uh, Silas and went somewhere else. And, um, you know, but uh, then at the end of uh, Paul's life in Second Timothy, he says, now bring Mark along. He's, 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 he's helpful to me. And so here's restoring. Like I was saying before, Mark gets restored to the good graces of the Apostle Paul. And yet Paul says, oh, Demas has left me. He loves his present world. And, and um, Titus has gone to Dalmatia. And everybody's leaving. And only you are with me, Timothy or, and Luke. <laughs> I mean, you know. But I mean, it, 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 throughout the entire Christian walk, whether we're elders or deacons or Sunday school superintendents or our, our missionaries or our evangelists or whatever it is, we, we need to uh, honor God. And if we glorify God and in our lives, then we're kind of worthy of honor ourselves. And um, if we do it full time, like you're saying, then maybe we get we double honor. But nevertheless, uh, everybody, every Christian has to hold up to that standard, I think. I tend to lean towards accountability, and I believe the scriptures teach accountability. We've had, we've had issues like in Baja with a with a group I was working with that the missionary was, was um, not doing the right thing, and we called his commanding assembly and suggested, and they sent three elders down. And the three elders came down, and they sort of said, "Yeah, we'll probably do something." Um, but we're not sure what we're going to do, you know. And it was it was a sad situation locally. And then we called another elder on a on a missionary who it was really sinning, and he had taken an, an, a, a concubine, so to speak. And they said nobody here even knows who commanded him way back when. And we we've washed our hands of him. We we don't know. So rather than withdraw the commendation or maybe send out a letter suggesting that he was no longer serving the Lord. They just wash their hands of it, and I think that's that that's neglectful. And I think in the end, you you sort of partake in the other man's sins, like Jeff said. I I think you, you there has to be some accountability. You have to if if you've commended someone, if you've sent them, if you're giving them double honor, if they fail, even more so, there has to be a standard. Joe. Joe said he had comments saved for last, so I hope you didn't forget him. Uh, just on the thing of. Um... Yeah, partiality. You know, I don't know if anything uh, discourages, if not infuriates, people other than a double standard. Mm -hmm. um, they see that. I mean, it's just. I mean, you're, you're sure to drive people away if they see it. If you know, if they see a double standard. Um, and then the thing I was going 
mentioned earlier when we were talking about when you were asking that if um, our elders held to a higher uh, standard than others, and I said yes, and I and I think of how the Lord dealt with sin in, you know, I hate to use the word common people, and then how He talked to the Pharisees. I mean, he had compassion on, on like I said, the woman who caught, was caught in an adultery, had compassion on her, you know, and he, you know, he says, you know, uh, wrote in the dirt and so on and so on. But like in Matthew 23, when he talked to the Pharisees, I mean, he called them the generation of vipers, you know, and you know, you're the blind leading the blind. So, you know, all leadership, and, you know, and especially in the things of God, are always held to a higher standard than, uh, because you're, we're, we're, quote, leading, you know, and, um, I remember when I first you know, was getting going to be recognized as, as an elder, and the, and the older brother and brother had me read Ezekiel 34. Man, it scared me to death. <laughs> you know, I was just like, wow. You know, um, but yeah, there is a higher standard uh, to those who are in any kind of leadership, especially in, you know, in the things of God. Tillman, you haven't been here too often, so you're here. We better hear from you. I just think uh, it to get to the truth, whenever you're talking about discipline, you know, I think the whole thing follows together and, and you have to be so careful. And the verses that you didn't read later on, some men's sins are evident and some you're never going to find out about. And it, it's so, I think it just points to the fact that you got to be so careful in choosing the men to begin with. Really know these men so that these things don't come up. Hopefully, um, in the classes you've missed, I think we've tried to stress that. I think we've stressed patience and select the right people because it's not easy to remove an elder. Howard Hendricks said years ago, on the radio, he said that he knew of a hundred men who had fallen into sin and they were in the ministry, you know, pastors or whatever. So he started to do a little study on looking at their character. And uh, he found there was one thing common in every single one of them. It was pride. And uh, there's so many things that can be hidden behind that facade of pride. I think about Diotrephes, and I don't know if he was uh, an elder, but boy, he was a man who won the preeminence, you know. <laughs> but it's always a good warning for us. The Bible says what? Uh, think not of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Esteem others better than yourselves. I mean, boy, that's a challenge. I mean, right there. And but to have that spirit of, of humility and, and knowing that the Lord will continue to work with you, but just be very careful about pride. You know? I've told this I've told this story probably before, and some of most of you have heard it, but Chuck Giannotti, the one who wrote the um, the book, um, wrote the book on uh, Elders, elder shop notes. He's one of the writers in the elder shop notes. We spent we spent four days together in Miami a, a few years back, and we had a forty-five minute commute each way to to the meetings. And we were driving to the meeting. And he asked me what I felt the number one challenge in my ministry was, and he said he'd ask almost everybody that was a full-time worker that question. And my answer to him was pride. 
And he said he, that he was surprised. He said he never had someone admit that was their number one challenge in the ministry. But I will tell you, it's something I battle every day. So I, I don't know how other people do it, but it's something, it, it, is, it, is, it is hard to try to be humble and your pride gets in your way every time you try. And it's just a constant battle against the flesh in that area. And um, the Lord's taught me a lot of lessons in that area. Um, I could tell you some of them, but he has a lot more to teach me because I still have an issue with pride. Me too. All right. Um, the time's up. If anybody has anything else, but if you need to go, feel free to go. Um, we try to keep them at an hour and we're a little over. What are you going to do let, next week? Matthew will let me know if we run too far over. You, you did pretty good this week. Uh, right. In closing, Dave Hammond, you want to pray for us? Hmm. Father in heaven, we thank you that you fill us with thoughts, and by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, you sift those thoughts out to bring out the truth. Father, thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you that we are teachable. Father, give us the initiative, the courage to put into practice these things and to edify one another. We <laughs> thanks through Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>